Alright, howdy y'all. Welcome to another episode of Once Upon a Time in Texas, where we share the myth, lore, and legend from the great state of Texas. I'm your host, Michael Mitchell, and boy do I have a show for y'all today. Uh, we're here to take you on a journey. I say we, like anybody else is here with me. It's just me. I'm sitting in my kitchen in front of the computer, in fact. Figured y'all would like to know that. Um, anyway, here to take you on a journey through some of the crazy tall tales that I've been able to find. Um, and they've come out of Texas. So uh, before we jump into too much, I'd like to remind everybody that I am your host and producer. I like saying producer. I like feeling like I'm a producer, although I don't really produce anything but this podcast. I don't really do any editing. It's pretty much raw and uncut. What you hear is what you get. Um, pretty much the only thing I try to do is try to silence my phone, and I'm sure I'll get four or five phone calls during this stupid thing. Um, so you might hear it buzzing, but oh well, I'll just shut it off. Uh, everything is researched and written by me, yours truly. And of course, I would like to thank our sponsor, Miracle Mortgage, um, which is pretty much, for the most part, me and my broker. That's it. Um, I am an independent mortgage loan originator and can do mortgages anywhere here in the state of Texas. So if you know someone moving to or in the state, tell them to give me a holler. Y'all can find me at themichaelmitchell.com and keep me in mind. You know, tell them, hey, if you're moving here to Texas, you need to talk to this awesome, chunky, bearded dude out of Wichita Falls by the name of The Michael Mitchell. And of course, the cheesy tagline that I came up with, we sell dreams, not mortgages. <laughs> Doesn't that sound nice? We sell dreams, not mortgages? Yeah. I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. I try to make doing the whole mortgage thing pretty entertaining. I did just close uh, two loans over the last week. Closed one for a friend of mine. It was a VA loan. Went pretty smooth. Everything went well. Got him and his uh, significant other into a house. Um, she absolutely loves it. I don't think he cares too much. I think he's kind of like me. I think I think he'd have been happy in a 10 by 14 wall tent, to be honest, but uh, she's happy, therefore he's happy. Uh, the other one is a, a friend of a friend, was able to get him into a loan. We got from submission to close in 10 days, which is just stupid fast. And he was able to move in on time, move out of the house he was in. Um, super happy camper and uh, glad, 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 glad I could help him out. So yeah, anyway, we sell dreams, not mortgages. So check out Miracle Mortgage here in Texas. You can find me at themichaelmitchell.com. So there you go. Let's jump into this week's podcast. Number 10, I think, 9 or 10. I'm pretty sure it's 10. Um, some of you might not believe these stories, and that's okay if you don't. You're going to listen anyway. But I assure you, even though you may not believe some of these stories, they are all absolutely true. So this, uh, this week's podcast is on tall tales. And as you know, uh, we have lots of cowboy poetry guys, uh, Baxter Black, and, and I forget some of the other ones. Baxter Black's the big one, and they do cowboy poetry. And um, yeah, I mean, there's just always tall tales. You know, we, I learned at a young age when I was in the Boy Scouts how to kind of tell a story. 
we'd be sitting around a campfire and of course it was ghost stories that would all scare the crap out of us and most of those stories had to do with young boys doing bad things and getting bad consequences and and i guess there were good lessons to learn in that but sometimes we had ghost stories which would scare the crap out of us too and make us all want to go to bed which i think was maybe the point so anyway let's go ahead and jump into them a little bit so our first tall tale so this is about the jackalope of west texas and this was really interesting because i've i've seen a lot of jackalopes and if you don't know what a jackalope is i'm going to explain it to you but it was kind of cool getting into the history of a jackalope, which actually kind of doesn't have much to do with Texas, but it's kind of a big Texas thing. So here we go. So many Texans are familiar with this legendary creature known as the jackalope. It's a mythical rabbit or hare, H-A-R-E, for those of y'all who don't know how to spell hare like rabbit. It's a mythical rabbit or hare with antlers. So it is described as a jackrabbit. And for those of you guys that don't know, a jackrabbit is basically, it's a bigger cottontail with these huge ears. Now, I was a science teacher for a while, and there's lots of very cool biological and environmental reasons those jackrabbits have those big ears. Um, obviously, one of them is to hear better, but they also have lots of blood vessels and stuff that run through there, so it helps regulate the the jackrabbit's body temperature and all that. And so jackrabbits are very cool. And then they've got these just huge, powerful rear legs and they can, they can really haul butt across the plains. They can boogie, but it's basically described as a jackrabbit with antelope antlers, hence the jackalope. And so antelope antlers specifically. So, but did you know the creature allegedly exists in West Texas? Now, if you don't know where West Texas is, um, for the most part, people consider it everything kind of west of the line from basically like San Antonio to Austin, more or less. West of there is kind of, I mean, to give you a rough idea, because Texas is a huge state, but then it goes up and it kind of hooks a left and goes across to Lubbock. And so that's kind of West Texas. Lots of oil wells. You know, everybody considers it very deserty, I guess. Is deserty even a word? Yeah, kind of deserty, dry. And that's kind of true, but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of beautiful places out in West Texas. It's really a very interesting place to live. I lived in San Angelo for a while. Um you get north of Lubbock, and it's it's kind of different. It pretty much still looks like West Texas, but it's higher elevation, and it's it's the Panhandle Plains, the Llano Estacado, the Staked Plains. So, anyway, sorry, getting sidetracked here. So, this a animal, you know, the jackalope, allegedly exists in West Texas. And according to local lore, the jackalope can be found in the desolate plains outside of Marfa, specifically. And if you listen to... Uh, Last week's podcast, you'll know the Marfa Lights. So I don't know. I like to think that maybe the jackalopes have something to do with the Marfa Lights. But anyway, it roams free in this vast wilderness out around Marfa. And some say if you're lucky enough to spot one, you'll have good luck for years to come. So I have been looking for a live jackalope for years. Now, okay, I need to address some of you naysayers. 
many of the naysayers say that this is just a fun taxidermy mount. You know, taxidermy, if you don't know what taxidermy is, it's where you take dead animals and you stuff them and make them look kind of alive again, but stationary. So it is said, um, and through the research that I did, this is kind of where jackalopes came from. Uh, it was a guy named Douglas Herrick. I hope I'm saying his name right. H-E-R-R-I-C-K. So Herrick and his brother were both hunters, avid hunters. And then they also kind of had some taxidermy skills too. So they stuffed some of their own animals, which Teddy Roosevelt did also. He did a lot of that, especially birds. So they started attaching deer antlers to jackrabbit carcasses in the 1930s. And then kind of, they just started selling them as novelties in Douglas, Wyoming. And when this fad kind of caught on, uh, later they were selling them in South Dakota. And then eventually I think you could do like a mail order jackalope mount. So, um, however, so that's one thing. There is another story that the idea of the jackalope came from some stories or legend in some Native American cultures that described horned hares or rabbits. And that has actually turned out to be plausibly true. Um, I was a little surprised by this. I, I've never heard of rabbits or hares having horns. But then I start reading a little bit and it actually turns out that some rabbits can get a disease called Shope papillomavirus. It may be Shope, I don't know, S-H-O-P-E, and then papillomavirus. And it actually causes these hares or rabbits to have a, a horn or antler-type tumors that grow out of very, various parts of their body. Sometimes it's out of their head, out of their mouth, sometimes out of their side. It's, it's really interesting. It does, it, it looks like a horn. I mean, an antler, you know? So it's really cool. Anyway, that's totally my science nerd side, just switching and going that way. So let's jump back to Douglas, Wyoming for a moment. So this was kind of fun. You can actually buy a jackalope hunting license that can be used during jackalope hunting season. Now that sounds interesting, right? And then I did a little more reading and I got to giggle at this. So jackalope hunting season only occurs between midnight and 2 a.m. on June 31st of each year. Did y'all catch that? June 31st. The other part is the hunter must have an IQ of at least 50, but not over 72. So, well, shoot, I guess I'm out on that. <laughs> I guess... I guess I'll just let you guys wonder if I'm uh, over or under on uh, the IQ limit. <laughs> so after countless hours of research and digging, I have not been able to locate a jackalope hunting season here in Texas. So sorry, folks. But, you know, maybe maybe if enough of y'all move here and say, hey, we need to have a jackalope hunting season, maybe we can actually get one in the Texas hunting book. Isn't that fun? I mean, that's just typical... That's such a typical, like, 1930s, 40s, 50s thing. You know, they kind of create this fad. And uh, anyway, they just kind of run with it. I love that. Kudos to y'all, Wyoming. And then kudos to Texas for picking it up and making it a thing out in West Texas. That's awesome. See some weird things out in West Texas, that's for sure. And I'm going to just, you know, a total side note here. I will tell you, I had never heard, uh, heard of a 
four-horned sheep or goat before. I've never seen this. These things look like the devil reincarnated, seriously. I am driving home. I, I worked for the Boy Scouts out in West Texas. I covered Junction to Fort Stockton. So 21,000 square miles of West Texas are mine. The, the district I had, I believe, was larger than the state of Rhode Island, um, which I guess isn't saying much. Um, but it, it was huge. So I spent a lot of windshield time, and I got to see lots of interesting and strange things. And uh, it was definitely an interesting part of my life, being a, a young married man. But uh, anyway, I'm driving back, and I, ugh, I can't remember the name of the town, but it's southwest of San Angelo, and I'm coming back from Ozona. And I come around this corner, probably speeding because everybody sped out there because, you know, everything's so far away. And I'm hauling butt and I come around and they're standing in the middle of the road, looks like the devil on four feet. I'm like, whoa. Anyway, like I slam on the brakes, I swerve to miss it or whatever. And like, I'm so freaked out by this. I like, I'm telling my boss about it, my, my scout exec, Carl Cummins. And uh, he gets to giggling. And he said, I think you saw four-horned sheep. They do have some ranches around here that have them. And apparently they're kind of rare, but it scared the crap out of me. I was like, whoa, what is going on here? Anyway, um, yeah, so look up a four-horned sheep or goat. I, I think it's a four-horned sheep, though. Uh, yeah, they're kind of freaky looking. They've got two horns that come out and go forward out of the top of their head. And then they've got two horns that kind of, from what I remember come out kind of behind their ears and curve around kind of towards their mouth and it's it's definitely very devilish looking so there you go four horn sheep go learn you a little something all right let's go to tall tale or legend whatever number two this is the ghost of old alton bridge now before we get into this one um just remember i did the research i don't agree with any of the views or whatever these people put out I'm just kind of reporting where the myth or legend comes from, so do not get upset with me. So Old Alton Bridge is just outside of Denton, Texas, which is about an hour and a half um, southeast of me here in Wichita Falls. So the bridge is built in 1884, and uh, it carries you know horses and, and carriages across it for years, and then, of course, later automobiles, and it goes over what they call Hickory Creek. Um... It's named for the now abandoned town uh, community of Alton, Texas, which was actually the county seat in Denton County from 1850 to 1856, which actually happened quite a bit. When I was out in West Texas, there's a little town called Mertzen, and Mertzen is the county seat, and they've got this huge courthouse up on a hill. You can see it for miles, um, but they've got this little town called Sherwood, and you can pull into it, and they've got this beautiful old courthouse. It's now a community center. I'm like, what happened? And they said, well, the problem was the creek would flood and uh, the people all got tired of trying to go vote or to make it to a, uh, you know, court hearings and stuff like that. And the creek would be flooded and they'd have to call it off. So they end up moving, you know, the whole county seat to just like two miles away and starting a new town called Merton. But so apparently that happens um, fairly regularly. So anyway, boy. Took a little side road there. Okay, so Alton, Texas. Sorry, let me get back on this. Alton, Texas was the county seat of Denton County from 1850 to 1856. So the bridge is actually the subject of several ghost stories. I was able to find a few of these, but and they all 
they all kind of center around this very angry, very vengeful ghost. Um, but there is one that kind of stands out and it, it actually kind of makes some sense, I guess. So legend has it that a goat farmer, here we go. Another goat. Okay. Yes. There's more goat stuff. Um, I seriously, poor goats. They get such a bad rap, I guess in the afterlife, you know, it's like, Oh, we're going to make you a vengeful ghost. It's like, well, okay, but we're, we're going to make you part goat. Ah, dang it. Fine. <laughs> anyway, so you have this goat farmer, successful goat farmer, I might add, and his name, and this is interesting because they actually have a name uh, and everything. His name was Oscar Washburn, and he was lynched by the Ku Klux Klan on this particular bridge in the 1930s. And it's said that the spirit of the farmer is said to haunt the bridge to this day, appearing to those who dare cross it alone. So visitors um, at the bridge have reported seeing a ghostly figure on the bridge at night, and some say they've heard eerie sounds coming from the nearby woods. Mm. So I, I had to go do a little more digging in this, of course. And so here we go. Here's kind of what I found. So I did find that there are lots of mentions of this particular bridge, the old Alton Bridge, also being called, you ready for it? It's really original. Goat Man's Bridge. Ooh, everybody say, ooh, ah, and then say, Goat Man. That's right, Goat Man's Bridge. And it's said to be haunted by a half man and a half goat figure called Goat Man, which I just love. Very original. Like, we couldn't call him Bob. Like, not only is this poor spirit, again, having to wander the afterlife for eternity as half man, half goat, but then they, I mean, they can't just call him Bob. They have to call him Goat Man. Like, do we have to be Captain Obvious here? So... Uh, and then this gets me more. Okay, let me ask. So which half is goat? Like top half man and the bottom half goat? Um, like a fawn, F-A-U-N from Roman mythology? Or like the Greek god Pan? Which I know he's been in lots of, uh, lots of plays and things like that. Um, and Pan was said to be the deity of forest fields and herds. <laughs> so... I had to do a little research on that, but I did remember Pan, you know, being half goat, half man. And, uh, you know, or then I got to thinking, and this got me giggling. I probably laughed way too hard at this because I laugh at stupid crap like this. Is the bottom half human and the top half goat. Hmm. That'd be pretty freaky, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it would be a little disconcerting seeing like upper half man, bottom half goat. But then I feel like you could have a conversation like, dude, what did you do? But then you get to thinking about top half goat, bottom half human. Would would it wear pants? <laughs> that <laughs> sorry, I'm cracking myself up now. That I mean that would also be hilarious. You know, like would it need suspenders? Does it does it have that trucker butt syndrome? Like, you know, oh dang it, my pants are falling down again. I, I mean, would it at least need a belt? <laughs> I would guess. But then would it also have like a big Texas belt buckle? I, I don't know. But then, I mean, okay, so then I get to thinking, maybe I dove too deep in this. So would it have hooves or hands? Yeah, I don't know. And then that would make it difficult for the whole pants thing. You know, uh-oh, I've got to go to the bathroom, but it takes me 30 minutes because of these stupid hooves to get my pants on. But I don't know. Anyway, uh, all right, sorry. I just got to giggling about that. Um. So, all right, so whew, let me get back centered. Anyway, 
Local legend says if you cross the bridge at night without headlights, which makes sense, of course, you will be met on the other side by the goat man. So let's kind of circle back around to the to the original guy, this Oscar Washburn, and why his ghost is so violent, so vengeful, so angry. Uh, and this is really kind of a sad story if it's if it's true, and it really didn't happen that long ago. Well, I guess it did. It was like 100 years ago almost, but 85, something like that. Um, so it was said that he was a dependable, and this is interesting because I found this on several places. He was a dependable and honest businessman and he had actually been dubbed Goatman by the locals because he was a successful goat farmer. And in August of 1938, the KKK thought that a successful black man just couldn't be tolerated, um, which I guess happened a lot. I mean, those were definitely different times. And so they snuck across the bridge and they kidnapped Oscar they take him back to the bridge, put a noose around his neck, and toss him over the side. Um, man, what a that's a terrible way to go. So when they looked down to see and make sure that he was in fact dead, they found that the noose was empty, and then they could see nobody down at the bottom in the creek, and so they even go down and look around, can't find anything. So they end up going back to Oscar's house and they slaughter his entire family, I guess, just for good measure. And, you know, that, that's just terrible. And I'm just relaying the tall tale here. This is the sad story, the tall tale. So don't get upset with me. You know, I said black instead of African-American. That's the way it's written on the stuff I found. But, um, yeah, it's just that that's a sad tale. And unfortunately, with our history, I kind of look at it and I go, things like that happen. Um, but anyway, I mean, the, the way I figure it, if the same thing happened to me or something similar happened to me, I, I guess that I, I would come back as a vengeful and violent ghost too. You know, I don't know that that's a sad story. So if you're down around old Alton bridge or goat man's bridge outside of Denton, Texas, you know, be careful. You might see the goat man and he's, he's angry. So say a little prayer for Oscar. <clears throat> All right, so the next one, tall tale number three. This one's about the Goliad Massacre, Goliad, Texas, right? So back in the early days of Texas, settlers, um, you know, I mean really early days. So settlers were often like at risk. They, they were attacked all the time by Native American tribes, Mexican soldiers, bandits, pirates, all these. I mean, they, you talk about the Wild West, that was Texas, right? So one of the most infamous incidents was the Goliad Massacre of 1836, where 342 Texan, and they put down Texan, but I think it was actually Texian at that time, um, rebels were executed by Mexican troops after surrendering following the Battle of Coleto Creek. So they had a little battle, and these 342 Texians um, surrender. And it's said that the spirits of these fallen heroes still roam the countryside near Goliad, seeking revenge on their captors. And that's kind of where it stopped. And I was like, well, crap, now I need to know more about this. And so I did the research. So here you go. So the revenge actually goes a little deeper than the fact that they were just POWs. Um, 
All of the Texians thought that they would be released in a few weeks. And uh, apparently they knew that Mexican General Urea, had, uh, who was one of Santa Ana's big guys, if you read about the Battle of the Alamo and lots of that time, you'll hear about General Urea a lot. But he had written to Santa Ana for clemency for, for all of these captured you know, Texian POWs. Um, but Santa Ana replies and says, under a decree, which he actually pushed through, um, but a decree of the Mexican Congress on December 30th, uh, 1835, I put down 1935, that'd be a little late, um, <laughs> December 30th of 1835, they put in there all armed foreigners taken in combat were to be treated as pirates and executed. I guess General Urea, I mean, he felt bad about it because were these people really foreigners? I mean, they kind of were because they were, you know, white people for the most part moving into Texas, but then they had special dispensation to be there. But, you know, were they really Mexican citizens? Were they not? Like, I don't know. There was a lot of confusing times. And so General Urea actually wrote, um, in his diary, and he actually know a lot about kind of what was happening at that time because of General Urea's diary, um, that he wished to elude these orders as far as possible without compromising my personal responsibility. And so it sounds like he was, he, he really didn't, I mean, he didn't want to execute these guys. But Santa Ana uh, repeatedly told, you know, tells him to follow orders. And then finally Santa Ana sends an order to execute the prisoners to another officer named Portilla, or Portillo, I'm not sure, I think it was Portillo, um, who decided, uh, and it, in his diary, puts down that, you know, he felt it was, he didn't agree with it, but it was his duty to comply with this. So on Palm Sunday, March 27th, 1836, uh, Portilla marched the Texians in three columns, out, and they're between two rows of Mexican soldiers, and they were all shot point blank, and any wounded were clubbed and knifed to death. So a pretty violent death, especially when they thought they were probably going to be released. And then we have Colonel James Fannin, which if you follow any kind of Texas history, you'll hear lots about Fannin. We even have a Fannin Elementary here in Wichita Falls, but he was the last to be executed. So they wanted to make sure that he watched all of his men die, all of these people. So very sad deal. So he's the last one executed. And they asked if he had any request before he was shot. And he said he did. He has three requests. Uh, first request is that his personal possessions would be sent to his family. And that he would be shot in the heart and not in the face. And that he be given a good Christian burial. So the Mexican soldiers take all of his possessions split it up between them. He was shot in the face repeatedly, and then his body was just burned with the rest of the Texians. So he was not given his Christian burial. So with all of this happening, I guess, and kind of the violence behind the execution and all that, um, I could see that there would be some angry souls still roaming the earth uh, around Goliath, a little upset at the way they were treated at the end. So there you go. All right, so here we go. Tall tale number four, or interesting place number four. Um, 
This is a place called the Devil's Sinkhole. So I'd actually been pretty close to the Devil's Sinkhole several times. So deep in the heart of the hill country. And the hill country is also kind of west of San Antonio, kind of west, northwest. You got towns like Kerrville, um, Fredericksburg. Anyway, the hill country is beautiful. If you get the chance to go down there, absolutely go. So in the heart of the hill country near Rock Springs, Texas, you'll find this natural wonder known as the Devil's Sinkhole. So it's actually a massive vertical cave that plunges over 400 feet deep, 400 feet into the earth. It's huge. And it's got an opening at the top that's about 40 by 60. So it was, it was a cave, obviously. And I guess, I mean, as most caves, you know, water was running through it at some point somehow. It erodes it out, and then apparently the dome fell in. And so now we get we get what we call this big sinkhole. So it does have this limestone center, and there are a system of underground caves um, with some of the tunnels reaching, as far as they know now, three to 400 feet under the surface of the earth. Like, that's that's pretty legit. And I may, I may do a side note here. I'll tell you guys about the goat hole here in a minute. Um, but it's just not any old sinkhole. So legend holds that it's home to a vast network of tunnels and caverns where strange creatures and hidden treasures await those brave enough to explore them. I don't know. My chubby butt's not going down there. Many of the legends are Native American in origin. Um, places like this are, I mean, always kind of considered sacred sites with Native Americans because they're, they're oddities. I mean, they're, they're different. So a lot of these really cool ancient sacred sites, uh, not just here, but around the world, you know, native people held them, you know, as sacred. So they have done some archaeological studies um, in the sinkhole and around, and they found uh, really a whole lot of artifacts, including arrowheads. And uh, it's believed that it could have even been a burial ground, but I guess they're not sure. I, maybe they were throwing people off in it. Who knows? So I did find that according to the book, Texas Beyond History, there are a total of 21 prehistoric sites that have been found in and around the Devil's Sinkhole. Um, So people have been visiting this site for eons, centuries. Uh, Most recent, I guess in most recent history, cowboys even used to come to the area and they'd write their names and other messages on the wall. you know, thank God they weren't, you know, middle schoolers like today. Then they would be drawing, you know, boobs and wee-wees on the wall and then giggling about it. But no, these cowboys, apparently they were all, apparently they were all fair, you know, good, not not like obscene. So one of the most interesting things about this sinkhole is that it's home to millions, I mean millions of Mexican free-tail bats. They come out around dusk. Uh, I never got to see him when I was out there, but a friend of mine, um, my assistant scout exec, when I worked for the Boy Scouts out of San Angelo, his name was Dennis Llewellyn. So Dennis, if you're listening, howdy. Uh, But he described this. He said that one bat would kind of pop up and everybody kind of goes, and then the bat would go back down. And they're just this massive swirl, like a tornado of bats down below. And then bat would pop up, make sure it was dusk. And then apparently it would make some sort of call, sound, whatever, and then boom, off it would go. And there was just this huge rush of wind as all these bats just came blasting out of the devil's sinkhole. So 
Is the place haunted and filled with strange creatures and hidden treasures? I, I don't know. I, I'm guessing it's full of lots of guano. Maybe that's the treasure. I mean, there are tons of bats and many people are creeped out by bats. And I'm assuming these bats have been coming to the same place for eons as well. And so, yeah, I, I could see that there would be lots of myth, lore, and legend surrounding a place like that. So, all right, a quick segue. I know we're getting a little long, but uh, there was a, a cavern on Camp Solmeyer over on the ranch part. And me and this guy was talking about Dennis. Dennis was like, I don't know, six foot six, six foot seven, tall, lanky guy. And I'm fair to moderately short and chunky, but we decided that we were brave enough to go down into this, this hole, this fissure. And he went down first, and I somehow ended up kind of getting cattywampus. If you don't know what that is, look it up. But end up cattywampus, and so he's going down feet first. I end up going down head first on my stomach. And we get, I don't know, it's probably only 10 or 15 feet down in there, but it felt like a whole lot further. And he's kind of looking around in this little area. It's not, not really much bigger than a small closet. And he turns and he goes, whoa. And I said, what? And he said, look. And so I turned my head to the side and I'm like, dude, I don't see anything. Like, I just see rock. And we argue about it for a second. And he finally reaches up and grabs my jacket and like yanks me down like two feet. And there's this little fissure off to the left. And there's a petrified, mummified goat down in this thing. All the hair has gone off of it. Eyes are still open. And it, it looks like it had just it gotten down in there. And then it just curled up and... That's what happened to it. And the wind and, and the moisture that came out of the caves that obviously this was attached to, because it was like a blowhole, uh, there was wind coming out of it all the time, had just kind of mummified it. And I, I told him, I said, man, thank, thank God you went down first. Because if I'd have seen that, I might have killed you trying to get back out of here, <laughs> getting over the top of you. So anyway, we ended up renaming it the Goat Hole. And uh, yeah, that, that was a cool place. Uh, it was interesting. We never did uh, get much further down in there. We had some spelunkers who were going to try to come get down into the goat hole. Um, and I guess they never did. So anyway, cool stuff going down the, going on down there around Fort McCabot, Texas, which is only, oh shoot, I guess it's probably 50 miles or so from Rock Springs where Devil's Sinkhole was we were talking about. So anyway, um, I know we're running a little long. Sorry, I try to keep these around 30 minutes. So there you have it. There are four incredible tall tales, interesting places, interesting characters here in Texas that will leave you wondering about the mysteries that lie beneath the surface of this great state. Do jackalopes come out of the devil's sinkhole? I don't know. So anyway, remember... If you know anyone looking to move to or in the state of Texas, tell them to give me a holler. Give me a shout. Let me and Miracle Mortgage help them find a little piece of paradise here for you. Maybe full of jackalopes. Give you tons of luck. You can find me at themichaelmitchell.com. You can apply for a mortgage there. You can check out more of my podcasts. You know, just check me out. If you like the podcast, share it with your friends. Share it with anybody. I actually apparently have two or three people... Uh, I think one from Italy and like two or three from Sweden that are listening to this now. So um, I hope they're not trying to learn English <laughs> off of my podcast. So anyway, share it with your friends. Uh, I guess there's places to do reviews. Get on, leave me a good review. But 
Long story short, thanks for tuning in to Once Upon a Time in Texas. I hope to see you again soon for more wild stories and legendary tales from the land of cowboys and oil rigs and longhorn cattle. So until the next time, y'all come back now, you hear, and remember, the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Y'all have a great week.